Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, St. John's. Please do have a seat. Uh, and if you would like, um, there, are, there is a handout um, available. So if you want a handout, just put your hand, um, hand up and um, it'll have the headings on it. It'll have the, the, uh, the scripture on there as well. There's a few hands going up. I hope we've got enough. <laughs> Here we go. Anyway, so on, the, on that sheet, if you can see it, uh, it, it starts with a quote. I'll put it up in a minute, but this is what the quote says. It says, I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. This has to be one of my favorite quotes ever. Uh, who said it is actually disputed where it comes from. But if you come to our house and you need to avail yourself of the facilities, you will find this quote printed out, framed, um, uh, put up on, on the wall. Many a time it has uh, diffused an argument or misunderstanding between Debs and uh, me, and uh, we find it a humorous way to remind ourselves that oh so often uh, we just haven't really got what the other one is trying to say. <laughs> I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. 
Sometimes our misunderstandings are humorous, aren't they? And they're inconsequential, uh, such as last week. Uh, we took an overnight trip to uh, Debs's uh, parents down in, in Hereford, and as we were packing on the Friday night, um, I shouted up to Debs, have you packed my trainers? Uh, to which she replied in the positive Saturday morning sees me searching in vain for uh, the aforementioned trainers. Um, Turns out Debs had misheard one word. I said, have you packed my trainers? She she heard, um, have you packed your trainers? Sadly, my size 11 feet don't fit into her her trainers. And of course, if you talk to Debs, she has a slightly different version of that story about who got which word correct. Well, what about this misunderstanding? I unearthed this one um, on the internet. Apparently, there is a street in Hong Kong. Uh, For those of you in the know, it's near Lan Kwai Fong Central. So there is this street in Hong Kong, and it is named Red Naxala Terrace. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Red Naxala Terrace. What is Red Naxala? I hear you ask. Well, it's none other than Alexander, spelt backwards. It's Alexander's house. It's his street. This is the result of what happens when one culture, reading left to right, meets another culture that reads right to left, and something (laughs) goes awry. Other times, though, misunderstandings can be more serious, and sometimes they have catastrophic consequences, don't they? You may well have heard of the time in 1952 when two teenagers were caught red-handed robbing a warehouse. One of them had a gun. Uh, and he was encouraged by the policeman to hand it over. Uh, his accomplice, who was with him, shouted to, uh, to him, Let him have it, Chris! Did he mean open fire, or did he mean hand over the weapon? Sadly, the criminal fought the former, and he shot two policemen. He killed one, and he injured the other. And such catastrophes happen all too often in relationships, and our church family is, is no exception to that, is it? We may not use literal guns, but our, our tongues can be just as deadly, bullets, uh, confusion, and misunderstanding can reign. We see this in the history of the early church, actually, where the split between east and, and west, why we've got an eastern church and a, and a western church, if you like, could at least in part be explained by Christians misunderstanding and, and misrepresenting other Christians. Today, too many controversies and, and disagreements about things like doctrine and practice and, and, and strategy and vision maybe preference, maybe what we do with our COVID guidelines. All these sort of things can be escalated or or sadly they can become destructive because we misunderstand each other and then we open fire. This was something that the Apostle Paul knew all too well in his experience. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he claims to have been been misunderstood um, in at least three different ways. Uh, but before we get to that, I'm going to pray for us so that, uh, we, uh, tr- so that I don't try and misunderstand you, uh, uh, let you uh, misunderstand me too much. There we go. I'm getting all confused. Let's pray. <laughs> we need help. Lord, please, would you uh, help us not to misunderstand your word this morning? Help us to hear clearly how you want, to, uh, want us to apply our lives to it. 
And then, Lord, we would ask that you would give us the courage and strength to do just that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please uh, do open them up again at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and that passage that we heard uh, read for us. And if you haven't got your Bibles and you've got a sheet, uh, that passage on that on that sheet. And we're starting at verse 12. And in verse 12, Paul says, now this is our boast. And please don't be uh, put off by that word boast. Um, I know it's not an especially positive word um, in our culture. It's not something we usually associate um, as, a, as a Christian quality. That's because uh, it isn't. And Paul acknowledges this actually later on in the letter. But what he's doing here is he is, he's mimicking the, the culture in which he, he finds himself. Uh, he's mimicking that bragging and that boasting that, w- that was prevalent in the culture. Not unlike ours, is it? And what he does is he takes that style and, and, and he takes that language and he turns it on, he says, and he, on its head. And he says, I'm going to boast. I'm, I'm going to brag. I'm going to brag about, well, actually my weakness. He says, I'm going to boast about being nothing. If I'm going to shout about how great, not me, not I am, I'm going to shout about how great God is. So whenever you hear Paul use this word, this, this, this language, this terminology, and he does it loads actually in this letter. This is what's going on. Verse 12, so this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so, or we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is Christians being influenced by worldly wisdom. Do you see that? Paul says we have not conducted ourselves according to worldly wisdom. In other words, others have. And those who have, probably false teachers influencing the ordinary run-of-the-mill Corinthian believers, they've also personally attacked Paul. Among the ups and downs that we have and face in life, we feel few things uh, as keenly as personal criticism, especially when we judge that criticism to be unfair. Those unfounded statements made against us often behind our backs, aren't they? Often with leaving us with little or no opportunity to, to come back, to defend ourselves, to clear the air. We bristle at the indignation. We, we fume at the injustice. Or, or maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're better than that. And it often manifests itself, doesn't it, this, in one of three ways. What we did is questioned. Uh, what we said can be questioned And what our motives are behind either of those two things can also be questioned. And from what we see here in in 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with all three of those things. He's being attacked for what he did, for what he said, and for what they believed his motives to be. 
Now, to be fair to them, they may not have realized quite how much they had hurt Paul or they were hurting Paul. Same can be true of us, can't it? Sometimes when we complain or criticize or accuse, we forget. We have no idea what's going on on the other side of the equation. The Corinthians seem to have been struggling with amnesia. Had they forgotten all that Paul had done to help them? He'd, he'd seen them come to faith. He'd helped many of them come to faith. He'd planted the church with them. He'd stayed with them. He'd lived with them. He'd, he, he'd, he'd worked with them for a good 18 months. And when he left, he, he, he'd prayed for them. He'd written them letters. He'd sent them helpers to assist them. You know, from what we have... In the New Testament, it would seem that no other church took up as much time, as much of Paul's time as the church in Corinth. Nor did no other church actually give him so much grief. So the point is, these guys knew Paul. They knew him. And he didn't need, it would seem, to convince them of his his godly living, his godly way of living. They'd experienced that. They'd been shoulder to shoulder with this man. But he felt that he needed to remind them of it. Which is a staggering thing, really. I mean, how many of us would be bold enough to do likewise? You know, if you came and spent 24 hours with me, literally (laughs) alongside me, and uh, you were able to ask me any questions about why I was doing what I was doing or why I'd said what I'd just said to whoever I was alongside at that point, it would not take me very long to get extremely uncomfortable (laughs) if you had that sort of level of, of accountability and authenticity with me. But Paul here welcomes that kind of scrutiny. In effect, he says, come on in, guys. Take a look around. Remember what I'm like. Walk with me again. You know my integrity. You'll see it. In that sense, Paul is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of chap. And I don't know about you, but what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of people are actually quite rare, I think. Quite rare people. I don't know how many of you saw that documentary on the BBC the other week about Prince Philip. Did anyone see that? I caught up with it on iPlayer. And in that program, members of the royal family paid tribute to, to a quite remarkable man, really. And one of the things that I found interesting in it was that testimony after testimony described the Duke of Edinburgh as a what-you-see-is-a-what-you-get kind of chap. (laughs) True, he didn't mince his words. True, he told it like he saw it. True, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and some people struggled with that. But that sometimes is the price of sincerity. There were no manipulative games with Prince Philip. No beating about the bush. He was sincere. He was straight down the line. A man of integrity, straightforward, and one of great humor, too. And he went out of his way to make people feel comfortable. Now, I don't know, but maybe Paul was a bit like Prince Philip. If he was, you can see how many many people could respect him for his integrity. But you could also see how he could be easily misunderstood especially from a distance. We'll never know. If it's not just Paul's conduct they were questioning, take a look at uh, verse 13. Uh, Verse 13 says, For we did not write to you anything 
that you cannot read or understand. So it seems that his words, as well as his conduct, his words were being misunderstood. You can picture the scene, can't you? Paul's letters being read out to the, to the assembled, the gathered church. People not really getting what he was saying. People getting distracted, mishearing. Maybe they'd come in late. Maybe they couldn't get the worries of, of the previous week off, off their mind. Maybe they were getting uh, distracted by thinking ahead to what they were having for lunch or what their afternoon activities were going to involve. Maybe they were trying to imagine Paul's boring, monotone style and focusing on that rather than actually the content of what was being read out to them. Do you see the problem? We're actually having the same spiritual battle right now, right in this moment. For sure, preachers could always be clearer. We could be more entertaining, we could be more engaging. Uh, Many in our land could do with preaching from God's word. But that's not really the point here. Assuming that preachers do preach from God's word, assuming that they are trying their best. When I'm sat where where you're sat now and and I'm listening, I've learned that I can't listen in a worldly way manner I can't just come and listen in that sense because there is this this spiritual battle that is raging I'm too easily distracted I'm too put put off by the the worldly things as it were and I have to pray I have to prepare I have to think and come and actively listen that God and, and ask God that he would speak to me by his spirit that I wouldn't get concerned about what's coming up for dinner or what my afternoon activities are or anything like that. There is this spiritual battle raging, folks, and Satan does not want the preaching of God's word to take place effectively. He does not want you to be encouraged. He does not want you to be built up in the faith. And this is a two-way process. And when we're more influenced by the worldly wisdom and the worldly methods, there is a massive temptation to moan and to criticize the preacher as if we ourselves, I'm now going to just do this, but <laughs> as if we ourselves don't take any part in that and play any part in that. And Paul, bless him, is bold enough to deal with this with his church head on. With his dear church. Did I really communicate something to you that you couldn't understand? I'm praying that you will come to, although you understand in part now, I'm praying that you will come to understand fully soon. So Paul, excuse me, um, having had his conduct questioned, his his words questioned, um, but also now we also see most painfully of all his very motives. Take a look at verse uh, 15 through to uh, uh, 17. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? There it is again, the worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no. So it appears that Paul had planned to visit them at least twice. But if you just cast your, um, your eyes down to verse 23, just outside of the passage that we, uh, we had uh, read, just go there briefly. It says this, he says, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. 
he didn't, he didn't go. You can hear the complaint, can't you? He said he'd come and he didn't. He doesn't care about you. He can't even make up his mind about what to do. One day he thinks this, one day he thinks that. How can we trust him? He doesn't even keep his promises. Such arguments are persuasive. But if there's one thing that uh, 20 years of pastoral uh, ministry has taught me, it's this. It's that there's always another side to the story. There's always something else going on on the other side of the equation. There is always another way to interpret the events unfolding before us. And all too often I jump to a conclusion that's cast somebody else in a negative light. I do. Why? Because my sensibilities have been hurt. I might have been offended. I might normally, it's normally that I haven't actually got my own way or something hasn't happened as I wanted it to happen or I thought it should have happened. And there's no place for that in God's family. Paul says that way of thinking, that way of acting belongs to the world. Friends, the problem Paul is calling out here is that Christians can be all too easily influenced by worldly wisdom. Our conduct can be susceptible to all sorts of things like pragmatism. You know, we do what works, not necessarily whether it's right. Our words can be susceptible to compromise because we want to fit in. Yes, yes to you, but no, no to you. Same thing. Our motives are predisposed to prioritizing our own personal preference. We may say it's all about God. We may say it's all about his glory. But deep down, I'm still putting myself on the throne. And the irony here is that everything that Paul's opponents are accusing him of, (laughs) when the mirror goes up, they're guilty of it themselves. So how we, St. John's, how we need to tread carefully here. So how should we respond? We're naturally defensive people, aren't we? And when what we did or what we said is, is misrepresented or misunderstood, when our motives are questioned, when these three things happen, our first thoughts are often to, to, to go on the offensive and uh, not to respond gently. Uh, but that wasn't what Paul did. Paul's response is one of spirit-empowered grace. Look at verse 12 again. He says, we have acted not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. He certainly doesn't dodge the issue. He deals with it head on. And he keeps people's eyes focused on the Lord Jesus. Here are a few lessons that we can learn from how Paul did that with the Corinthians. Firstly, trust each other. Trust each other. Give your Christian mates the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Unless there's a track record, of course, of of indiscretion or or loads of evidence to, to, to the contrary. Don't be quick to read between those lines. It is so easy to do that, to read between the lines, especially these days, especially online. The written written word is so easily misunderstood. We don't hear the tone. We can't see the person as they're communicating with us. Texts, emails, social media, 
anything negative, anything even slightly negative or, or contentious, is normally always best communicated face to face. We need to trust each other. Trust each other. Secondly, don't look for ulterior motives. This is what Paul would say. This usually happens when, we, when things don't turn out the way we want. We become frustrated, don't we? We, we, we look for someone else to blame because it's not happened as, as we want it to happen. And the reality is that there are nearly always two ways, at least two ways, actually, uh, to, 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 to judge why someone has done something. Don't go for the negative or the cynical one. <laughs> Instead, pursue the positive one. Put, put your mate in the best light possible, however stretched it may seem. Why would we do otherwise unless we are seeking division, unless we are seeking to put others down? No, we always need to think the best of each other. Thirdly, don't jump to conclusions. Don't jump to conclusions, especially if somebody has proven faithful in the past. Why write them off now? Instead, be patient. Look for ways to clarify any misunderstanding that you may have. Normally we find it's us, don't we, who are seeing things uh, unclearly. We're the ones who have misunderstood things. So don't jump to conclusions. And fourthly, I think Paul would say here, depend ultimately on Jesus, not on others. Why? Because the reality is sometimes we do let each other down. We do fail. But at that point... We should resist the temptation to become frustrated or angry with each other or withdraw from each other. Instead, we need to remember that our trust is in the Lord Jesus. We need to remember that our unity together as God's family is in the Lord Jesus and in his grace. Uh, Take a look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through, the, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. I love this. I love this. It's as if Paul is saying, look, at the end of the day, even if you can't bring yourself to trust me, trust Jesus. I'm not perfect, but he is. His conduct is utterly holy. It is full of integrity. His word is trustworthy and it is life-giving. And his motives are pure and they bring glory to God. What an incredible solution to the problem of worldly wisdom. Jesus, his perfect life, his sufficient death, his physical resurrection, his empowering spirit, his his sure and certain return, all giving us the ability and the confidence to live lives of spirit-empowered grace, focused on Jesus in the here and now in Hartford in 2021. I do wonder if you have ever thought about how many promises God has made in his word. Have you ever thought about that? 
Apparently, a Canadian school teacher once decided to try and count them up. Do you know how many he found? Nearly 7,500 promises. He read it through time and time again, writing them, writing them all down. Paul isn't interested in the exact number. <laughs> he says in verse 20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They're yes. You see, his point is that all the promises God makes find their fulfillment in Jesus. There is an unequivocal, resounding, reassuring yes in Jesus. Just think of some of those promises. Some of those promises that maybe you are familiar with. Right back in the beginning, that promise of a serpent crusher at the start of Genesis. All the way through to the end, the promise of no more pain, tears, death, right at the end. They're all fulfilled. There is a resounding yes to those promises in Jesus. You might think of the promises to Noah or to Abraham, to Moses, to King David, through to the promises to Mary, to the apostles in the New Testament. They all find their fulfillment in Christ. They only make sense in him. The pages of this book are, are literally littered with God's promises. As I say, you may have ones that are precious to you. Promises of protection. Promises of peace. Of strength. Promises of forgiveness. Promises of, of adoption into his family. Promises of joy. Promises of resurrection. I could go on and on. There are great promises in his word. But it is possible, isn't it? And maybe you're in this place this morning that you're struggling to believe some of these promises. Maybe some of them, maybe all of them. Maybe you're doubting God. Maybe you need assurance. Maybe you need certainty. Maybe you're looking for some kind of guarantee. Well, if that is you, can I urge you to look again, look afresh on the Lord Jesus. Focus your gaze on him. Focus your gaze on his life, on his death, on his resurrection, on his ascension back to heaven. This is where your hope, this is where your certainty lies. And then take reassurance from these last two verses in, in our passage this morning. It is God who makes you stand firm in Christ. That's amazing. It is God who makes us, his church, stand firm together in Christ. He anointed us. He has set his seal of ownership on us. He has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There's the guarantee. You say, I don't feel it, John. Well, do you have that ache, ache in, your, in your heart? Do you have that ache in your heart for somewhere better than this? Do you have that sense that there is more to this world than meets the eye? Are you saddened that this world is not all that it could be, in fact, all that it should be, perhaps? Does that make you sad? That the church has, has great potential, but people just keep letting you down. Are you longing for that day when you don't let yourself down and that you could be different forever? 
and not tripping over that same old sin. Friends, that longing, that ache that we have in here, that is God's guarantee. That's what he's talking about here. That is his spirit in your hearts giving you a foretaste. It's giving you a longing. It's giving you a hope, a sense of what is to come. That is his solution to the problem of worldly wisdom in the here and now. Spirit-empowered grace focused on the Lord Jesus. He has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, how we long for that day when all the Father's promises are finally and fully completed in you. And we pray for that day to come soon. But until it does, Lord, please keep empowering us by your spirit to live lives of grace that are focused on you. In our relationships with each other, we pray that you would help us. Help us to trust each other. Help us to look for the best in each other. Help us to be patient with each other. And help us to depend ultimately on you. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.